Hello, listeners. Welcome back to the Morning Report podcast supported by the St. Paul's Hospital Foundation and QXMD. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based practice in clinical practice. Check out READ for easy access to research personalized for you, calculate for over 400 easy-to-use decision support tools, and learn to earn CME online in minutes per day. Try them today at qxmd.com apps. Again, that's qxmd.com apps. Today, I am joined by Drs. Barry Casson and Thomas Rostin. So here we go. This is Mr. P. Here's some background history on him. He's a gentleman in his 60s. He's of Italian-Canadian descent. He's married and accompanied in the clinic where I saw him with his partner. His past medical history includes coronary artery disease requiring three-vessel bypass in 2015. He has a CHF with an ejection fraction of 35%. He has hypertension, dyslipidemia, and insulin-dependent type 2 diabetes. He doesn't have any known end organ uh, dysfunction from that. He has no allergies. His medications currently include aspirin, 81 milligrams a day, atorvastatin, isoprolol, ramipril, spironolactone, Lasix, metformin, linagliptin, and insulin, glargine, and aspart. In terms of his social history, so uh, other than being married, he's a non-smoker. He has minimal alcohol use. He has no unusual occupational exposures, no recent travel, and he immigrated to Canada in the 50s. In terms of his family history, his grandfather had a stroke and grandmother had an MI, both in older age. No other uh, suspicious family history. So he was doing well until late 2018, other than the relatively extensive medical history I just mentioned. So this is late 2018. He's clipping his toenails and accidentally nicks the skin on the tip of his left first toe. He has a small little wound there that really doesn't bother him. He barely felt it, um, just a little bit of blood. But then within about a day, the wound turns black. It's not painful. He's feeling otherwise well. Within two days of that injury, he starts to develop small, raised, red to purple lesions over his feet that ascends rapidly up his legs, up to his abdomen, over his back, includes his arms, extending from distal to proximal. He's essentially covered in this papular petechial rash in a couple of days to a week or so from onset. On his feet, some of those lesions actually ulcerate. There is associated pain in the feet, especially overlying or underlying the uh, ulcers that he's developed. And on the side, that first left, uh, sorry, left first toe wound is very gradually enlarging, but looks nothing like these other, uh, these other wounds. Those are his presenting symptoms that he comes into clinic with. What's on your mind at the moment in terms of your differential and anything else that you want to know right now? Uh, obviously an interesting presentation. I think the first thing that sort of comes to mind is you do mention that he doesn't have any end organ complications of his of his diabetes, but I guess we do know he has end organ complications because he has severe coronary disease. So I think in terms of, you know, there's a good chance that he has other things like peripheral neuropathy, um, you know, things that place him at risk, even if he doesn't recognize it, of having a wound that's potentially significant. I guess what I'd like to know is that, uh, you know, get a good infectious review of systems. Also ask about 
drugs that he's started on around this time in case this wound is a red herring. Um, and then any like recent travel or uh, obvious like exposure, like soils, you know, what he did with that foot after he injured it. But, you know, I think trying to, I'm trying to put things together and I, I right away I sort of think, you know, his diabetes is probably pretty significant and that places him at all sorts of peripheral infectious risk and immunocompromised state that um, I think we can't ignore. Absolutely. So you're, you're talking about um, exposure to soil and stuff in the form of uh, the wound on his foot is an entry point for some kind of infection. Yeah. It, was there a specific medication that you were thinking of when you said medication that might be a red herring or that the wounds might be a red herring? Was there something in particular? You know, I guess I don't, I don't have a specific, there's obviously certain medications that you think about in terms of drug reactions and things. But for example, if somebody thought that he had early signs of infection and started him on a specific antibiotic that, that actually was what led to this problem and he associates it with the, with the wound on his toe, but in actual fact, it's related to a drug. And I guess my only point with the with the if, with the diabetes is that I think we view this gentleman right off the bat as being immunocompromised quite significantly, and so I think we think of all of the infectious things that an immunocompromised person could develop, and that's why I'd be particularly interested about like travel history, exposure to soils, was he in hot tubs, you know, things that in the back of my mind I think of being as somewhat opportunistic infections in the setting of someone being immunocompromised. Yeah, I, I would support that. I think that the. The thing that captures my uh, trying to visualize is, first of all, the the black toe within two days. So I think we can't ignore that. So that would support, I think, the peripheral neuropathy and the peripheral vascular disease as it's relatively asymptomatic. If we postulate that this is an infection, then these are metastatic lesions from an infection, but he doesn't sound sick. So it's hard to it's hard to think that this is spreading infection in all these different areas when he walks into the office. I, I would expect if this were sepsis and, and metastatic uh, infection, we would, we would be seeing him in the emergency, not in the office. So it raises, and what Thomas was saying is that, is there another, is this, if you will, a red herring, and does he, are the other lesions different than the initial lesion? So right now you're, we're all kind of... Uh going back and forth about whether to group these things together or separate them. Yeah. And the things are the wound on the toe, which was traumatic by history at yeah. least, and these other different skin lesions that look very dissimilar, although they both both kind of seem to have this marching, worsening pattern. So there's some temporal relationship, but right now it's not really clear. Maybe infection, maybe antibiotic for infection that would connect those two. Yeah. I don't want to jump to a conclusion right away because I think at this point I want to keep a very open mind and a broad differential. But just in listening to Dr. Kasson and hearing the story and thinking about everything, I think he's, I, I totally agree that this doesn't sound like a systemic infection, but maybe an autoimmune reaction to an infectious source. Like right off the bat, I think about things like cryoglobulinemia and things like that. But I don't, I don't want to go down that path yet because I think it's too early. But you do wonder if there's some triggering event and then he's got, a systemic inflammatory response that and that that has led to this more pronounced presentation of something than you would expect. Okay, absolutely. Um, so, essentially, his physical exam, other than the description of the lesions that I've mentioned, there's really not a lot else to find. Is there something specific that you would actually want me to mention? Can you describe the lesion? That you describe the toe lesion, but just to, and I'm assuming all the other peripheral lesions are similar. 
Are they discrete? Uh, how big are they? What You mentioned purplish color. Yeah. So do they blanch? So these are non-blanching, uh, one to three millimeter violaceous or red to purple lesions. They're fairly evenly distributed over the, the distribution that I mentioned, which for this gentleman started off localized and became extensive. It's symmetric between both sides of his body. It is palpable and non-blanching. I may have already and, said And that. Does, does it involve his uh, mucous membranes? No involvement in mucous membranes. And does it involve his palms and soles? That's a great question. We actually don't know if he had involvement of his palms and soles. We <laughs> saw him later on in his course. And and I guess the the you gave us a lot of history, but I guess given his presentation and uh, you mentioned his partner, uh, but you didn't mention you mentioned that he had a partner, but we didn't get a an in depth understanding of the partner, the relationship, or the multiple other potential relationships. What um, would you like to know? Well, is he heterosexual? Is he homosexual? Does he have a number of partners? Is he exposed to STDs? Does he have multiple risk factors? So by his report, he is monogamous heterosexual, and he and his wife are in clinic, and there's no suspicion of um, other partners uh, in the mix. And as far as we know, no risky sexual activity. And intravenous substance use, anything like that, none of that came up? No, nothing at all. So I guess at this point, I'd like to know, what would you actually like to order? What are the tests that you would want? There's really no other history that we could elicit at this point. So I'm what, sorry, what can I give you? Do we have any? Inve- you, you didn't give us any investigations. Nothing yet. Well, why don't we start with the routine investigations, sure. the, the, the non-thinking that, uh, that may, may inform our thinking? Sure. So I'll give you his, his really basic investigation. So um, his CBC shows a slightly elevated white count. His neutrophils are 8.1. His eosinophils are normal. His renal function shows a creatinine of 103. And when we look back, we have some readings from maybe six months ago or so uh, that put his creatinine in the high 80s, low 90s. His CRP is 25. Uh, and he has had hep C serology which was negative. He had hep B, which is core antibody positive, surface antibody, and surface antigen negative. And that was the basic investigations that were sent with the case. What else can I give you? Uh, I think just in line with more really basic stuff, like I'd love a urinalysis on this fellow to see if there's anything that's active in the urine. Not available just yet. That comes later. And um, You're right to ask for it, but not available. Um, and then I think just as like something just uh, I, I like a chest x-ray on someone like this and chest x-ray is negative and I think the other thing is is I think in uh, an investigation looking at the STD uh, potentials should be involved in and I know that uh, the hep- hepatitis serology has been done but I think we should do syphilis serology we should look for the guanacoccus in, in its various forms uh, on the mucous membranes and, and by blood culture those are things that I'd want to know at this point. There are more specific, what you're describing, the skin lesions, I think Thomas referred, uh, alluded to, is, and it sounds like leukocytoclastic vasculitis. So I think, but we don't know that at this point, but that certainly, and how to tie that in with everything else, I don't know. But that's that's the suggestion that I, I hear. Okay. Anything else that you want for, like, so uh, we'll, we'll get the categorization right now, he has palpable purpura yeah. all over his body, um, as well as this black 
lesion on his toe, which is not yet described. So I can fill in some of the additional investigations unless, Thomas, you, you have some that you want in particular. I, I would just say that when I'm faced with a case where I'm really not sure exactly what's going on, and it's you can I think when these patients walk in the clinic, the, when you first see them, you know that you're going to be drawing a broad differential diagnosis and ordering a lot of things. The first things I think about are what are the great mimickers in medicine? And I would make sure that I have tests to rule in and rule out those diseases because you feel pretty silly if you get down the road of whole body MRI when you haven't even ordered an HIV test yet. So just I think about those things and those are things like, you know, HIV testing, all of the hep B, hep C serology, some of the things like syphilis that Dr. Casson mentioned, TB. And I know they don't really fit all w- with this presentation, but some of those things like HIV become very relevant because then opportunistic infections become more relevant. So I would make sure that I've, I yeah. try and go through a verbal check or a mental checklist to make sure I don't miss those things. So all of those things would be part of my initial investigations. And you had mentioned specifically, you asked about rash on or eruption on the hands right. for syphilis. Right. Okay. Okay. So I, I will give you the the panel that was sent initially. His INR and PTT were normal. His peripheral blood smear was normal. He has an a rheumatoid factor, an ANA, a cryoglobulin and cryofibrinogen, an ANCA, an HIV, SPEP, UPEP, a VDRL, which are all negative. Uh, he actually didn't have an STD screen done, so no results there. And he has an IgA that's slightly elevated at 5.03. Actually, not slightly elevated, it's elevated. I don't have a limit of normal here in front of me. Those are your results right now. What's the next test that you want to do? Skin biopsy. Fabulous. Okay. How are you going to do this skin biopsy? What do you actually need and what are you actually looking for? What's important here? You know he has petechiae. So you're asking a cardiology trainee what to look for in a skin biopsy, which is a difficult question. But uh, <laughs> I'm asking a smart person why they wanted a, a skin biopsy. Well, I want to see what the vasculature looks like in particular within the skin. Um, and then if there's any obvious signs that there's an infection, neutrophil invasion, that kind of thing. I also think it's a fairly non-invasive test that is just pretty simple to do and pick a place where there's lots of lesions and before I start ordering other fancy and more invasive things. Totally agree. What an easy test. You can do it in the office. Um, if you use a small enough, like a three millimeter punch biopsy, actually you don't require a stitch. I'd love a plastic surgeon to correct me if that's wrong, but um, they actually heal really well on their own. It just requires a little bit of freezing, takes about 10 minutes to do beginning to end. So really easy. Dr. Kasson, do you have a, do you have any personal experience with like, how would you order the skin biopsy for this person? Are there any specific parameters that you would do? Because some dermatologists say lesional biopsy, part on the lesion, part off the lesion because they want the interface, one biopsy, two biopsy. The... I don't think so. I mean, if, if we were thinking that that this patient had lupus and we wanted to look at his normal skin and his lesions, that's one thing. But I think given the representation that you said, I don't think I'd ask, I I think I'd biopsy the lesion. Great. So you do a skin punch biopsy for H&E. You do also a second skin punch biopsy for immunofluorescence, which is... So the uh, IgA you mentioned? Exactly. So we, you have to get the immunofluorescence if you want to check immunofluorescence. Yeah. So we're going to, so what we found was stains positive for IgA and C3 in the superficial dermal blood vessel walls. The other findings are consistent with leukocytoclastic vasculitis or LCV. 
which uh, included extravasation of red blood cells from the blood vessels. The pathologic diagnosis is IgA vasculitis. Does that fit? Are you happy with, uh, does that wrap everything up for you? And it's okay to say yes. There's, there is more to the case, but this person saw a number of, of uh, physicians along the way that I think made reasonable choices uh, at the time. Things just evolve sometimes. I think there's t- two questions that aren't well answered at this point. So we have a name, but we don't have a reason, and we haven't come up with what our treatment strategy is. So if the name can lead us to those two things, then, you know, I think it is reasonable to start to think that we're wrapping things up. But if the name IgA vasculitis doesn't answer why they got it or what exactly the treatment course is going to look like, then we're not finished and we're nowhere near finished. So I, I would I would agree. I, I think part of the issue is when I hear IgA deposition in, in small vessel uh, vasculitis, I would try to match it to the syndrome, which he doesn't appear to have. And that's adult Hinoch uh, line. He hasn't demonstrated any other features. He's just got the skin features. Then it's possible that that's what it is. The other, the other issues, I guess, just the demonstration of leukocytoclastic vasculitis as Thomas goes through a checklist trying not to miss uh, some of the things that would give an understanding of the case. When I hear this term, there's a number of things that I think about that, that are important to, to look at as the etiology of leukocytoclastic vasculitis. And the number one thing for me, although I rarely find it positive if I don't see the clinical syndrome, the number one thing is always infection. And so deep-seated infection like endocarditis and other things, are that's so I always do blood cultures. Even if there's nothing else to suggest an infection, I do it and look for infection as the source. And then there's the whole differential of sensitivities, uh, autoimmune diseases, protein abnormalities, a variety of things. But it's the infection that I think that I'm afraid to miss. We are going to come back to all of those thoughts. We're just going to fill in a little bit of knowledge around IgA vasculitis. So just a little bit of uh, content and epidemiology here. So formally referred to as uh, HSP or Hinoxonline purpura, it's an immune complex vasculitis primarily of small vessels, typically affecting skin, joints, gut, kidneys, which were the the syndrome that you were saying was absent. Right. We just have skin. It was first described in 1802 by Heberden of Heberden's nodes, and it was later refined by Shawnline and uh, Hinox. Uh, it's most common, it's, sorry, it's the most common systemic vasculitis in childhood, incidence of about 3 to 26 per 100,000, and it's mostly in those 4 to 7 years old. In adults, it's about 10 times less common. There's a slight male predominance, and it's more common in Caucasian and Asian children. There is seasonal variation, but it's different between children and adult, which kind of raises just the, the flag that that's really just um, signal without any substance. In terms of clinical manifestations, uh, there's this tetrad of palpable purpura, arthritis, abdominal pain, and renal disease. And in a French vasculitis retrospective survey of 260 patients, here are kind of the frequency of the, the um, big four. So skin purpura was present in around 100%, and 100% of those that involved the legs. It can be necrotic or hemorrhagic, but that's less common. The arthralgias are common, so 61%, but true inflammatory Synovitis is only found in 16%, and it's usually knees, ankles. In terms of abdominal symptoms, so abdominal pain, around 50%, with the bleeding 16%, 
and then intussusception and uh, perforation lower. It's usually this colicky abdominal pain, intestinal ischemia that that uh, we think about. Intussusception certainly more common in children than adults. And the renal involvement is really the uh, complicated area. So renal involvement is common, forty-five percent to eighty-five percent. Hematuria is very common. It's in the eighties, but renal failure relatively rare in children. More common in adults. EGFRs of less than sixty in 30%. But true end-stage renal disease is rare. And elevation in the IgA, which was the test that we had in this case, uh, and kind of something that we want to know the value of of the test, it's only elevated in about 53%. So 50-50 chance that it's going to be elevated. So a negative IgA does not exclude um, the diagnosis. ANCA can be positive 4%, ANA 14%. In terms of diagnosis, so there, the defining histopathologic feature is abnormal IgA deposition in the vessel wall. And you were actually getting at the idea that like, well, this is just skin. So it's not really like HSP. It doesn't really fit the syndrome. So in 2012, there was an update of the Chapel Hill International Consensus criteria or, or sorry, nomenclature, which renamed HSP to IgA vasculitis. And there was subsequent additions which dealt with just the skin and actually said that IgA vasculitis of the skin can be its own isolated entity. So that is a, a described phenomenon. There are classification criteria, but it's from quite a while ago, the 19, from 1990. And essentially, this applies much more to kids than adults, so it won't really help us here. But age less or equal to 20, palpable purpura, acute abdominal pain, and biopsy showing granulocytes in the walls of the vessels. In terms of management, for for the non-life-threatening components, so the purpura, colchicine, dapsone, there's actually studies on Montelukast, um, NSAIDs if there's no GI or renal involvement. For joints, colchicine, glucocorticoids if absolutely necessary, analgesics, and again, NSAIDs if no GI or renal. It's really uh, where we get into the interesting stuff is the GI manifestations and the renal manifestations. So from a GI perspective, if it's just abdominal pain, that's not really severe. You haven't perforated, you're not bleeding. So most of the treatments that we had above apply there as well. But if you have bleeding or perforation, then you may have disease so severe that you require prednisone or cyclophosphamide and maybe surgical evaluation. The renal disease is very complicated because there's controversy over whether or not there's benefit uh, of corticosteroids to treat renal involvement or prevent evolution of end-stage renal disease. That being said, it's often used um, when there's severe disease, which would be progressive AKI, crescents on biopsy, proteinuria that's more than a gram per day, despite an ACE inhibitor. Then there's some really uh, fairly sketchy literature on cyclophosphamide, rituximab, cyclosporin, MMF, etc. Uh, unfortunately, there there is a poor association between the presenting symptoms and the long-term renal outcomes. So the best predictors tend to be renal function, the presence of significant proteinuria, or macroscopic hematuria. What's the efficacy of colchicine uh, in the treatment of in the skin lesions? I think the, uh, uh, so that has been studied, and I think that it's relatively good, um, but I don't have a specific number for you. There is an ongoing study on what's the best treatment for leukocytoclastic vasculitis in general. There's the Artemis study and the CUTIS study. I think Artemis is uh, on LCV. I'll have to confirm that later. Um, but that's looking at uh, a couple different options. So colchicine, dapsone, and I believe the third is imuran. Okay, so 
All right, so that fills in some of the content knowledge around IgA. So we'll come back to the case. So he is treated with topical betamethasone. So his diagnosis at this point is skin-limited IgA. He's treated with topical betamethasone, which improves the generalized rash. However, the ulcers on his feet and the lesion on his first toe continue to worsen. And the toe now looks, frankly, gangrenous. So a month after starting treatment, he's admitted to hospital for progression of the foot ulcers and the gangrenous toe and worsening pain. At this point, he has a urinalysis, and it shows one plus protein and a small amount of blood, but creatinine is stable. His inflammatory markers are not reassessed. Um, I'll, I'll tell you what they did, but I'm curious what you would do at this point. What is like actually happening for this gentleman? So it's interesting when you brought up very early on that you said HSP or IGA vasculitis is really not that closely associated with renal compromise, and that's not a big manifestation of the disease. But I think it's important to note that that's mostly derived from children. And this is a guy who has ischemic heart disease and diabetes. And I would say beyond a shadow of a doubt has some level of of renal impairment at a baseline, even if his creatinine and GFR are normal. So I guess my point in all of that is that uh, I would be really worried about severe complications of HSP in this person because he doesn't fit the normal bill of a healthy five or 10 year old who can bounce back. And I think you have to think about this as being like a potentially life-threatening disease in this person. I mean, his ejection fraction is 35%. His mortality in the next five years is 50% on its own. So I would say that my only thought is that he really has to have his renal involvement because I assume that that's what is at this point treated very aggressively. And, you know, I would say that early treatment with even if it's controversial with things like corticosteroids, is maybe warranted. And so, maybe a renal biopsy as well, but but it depends whether or not we're convinced that this is actually what's causing it. But I would say that's probably the cause of it on the background of baseline right. renal dysfunction. You're mm-hmm. absolutely right. IgA vasculitis actually does have, uh, uh, yeah, I, didn't, I certainly didn't mean to underplay the renal importance. 11% of adults develop end-stage renal disease, 13 severe renal failure, 14 moderate renal failure. Um, so it, it is a serious disease, it does just often have spontaneous resolution. So it, it does depend. You just have to monitor these people and treat when you're sure you can offer some benefit there. So you feel at this point there's benefit you can offer with treatment. I would just first make sure that I've ruled out infective endocarditis before I, and another infection before I start giving him steroids. But okay. yeah, then yeah, I think and I, I would think treat. The, uh, the, the, the thing that you're describing to me that doesn't quite fit is, again, the, the black lesion that's progressive. Uh-huh. Um, on, on the toe, so so that that continues to bother me. That that supports what Thomas was saying that that he's got small vessel disease, maybe large vessel disease, that he's got compromised circulation, and this has been a progressive. This by itself may be the driver of everything else if it's the source of infection. Great. So for clinical perspective, hematuria with minimal proteinuria, which is the category he's in right now, has a rate of significant CKD of less than 5%. So right now, from a renal perspective, I guarantee when this person sees a kidney doctor, they are going to watch it and wouldn't necessarily jump to treat just based on the kidney involvement. But I think your point is, that's totally accurate. We need to really consider that this isn't just skin limited. This is systemic HSP minus arthralgias arthritis minus GI, but it's no less life-threatening in the context of his comorbidities. Okay. So can I just ask one question at this point? So I don't still understand why we think this guy got 
IgA vasculitis. And I still don't understand how it's associated with a cut on his toe. Like that just doesn't add up to me. It's incredibly rare in adults and it's probably even more rare to be triggered by a cut on your toe. So I don't doubt that he has IgA vasculitis, I guess, at this point, but I'm confused as to why it's him and why it's now. Very reasonable question. So we'll try and answer that. I don't know if we're going to give everyone all the answers that they want, but we'll do our best. So in hospital, coming in with the diagnosis of IgA vasculitis based on skin biopsy, the new finding of proteinuria, a small amount of blood, but stable creatinine, they are concerned about systemic disease, and they actually treat him with IV solumedrol, three daily doses of 40 milligrams, which is essentially equivalent to 50 milligrams oral prednisone. He has no immediate relief of his symptoms. Are there any uh, tests that you want to do at this point? Because Dr. Kasson, you're alluding to the fact that like, eh, this IgA vasculitis, like we just went through that that's a small vessel vasculitis, but this guy is having symptoms that are kind of starting to migrate into larger medium right. or, or or perhaps larger vessel disease in the context of cardiac risk factors. So I think, I think as what do you would, want to do? we would all culture him. We would all con- be concerned about infection. I think we'd have to, this is a good time to look to see what what his vessels look like because we're postulating that he has a vascular uh, abnormality and to look uh, image his toe and see if he's uh, if this is soft tissue or it's involving the bones and and exactly where it is so those right. are the things i think we would all do at this time great anything to add at the moment no i think that like a runoff ct of the legs would yeah. be what i was thinking too great so he has additional blood work. So blood cultures times two are performed. Those come back negative. Protein C, S, antithrombin, anticardiolipin, lupus anticoagulant were sent and were all negative. He has a spec CT of the left foot, which showed increased uptake in the distal phalanx of the left first toe, suspicious for osteomyelitis. There's gas seen at the distal tuft there with some soft tissue defects noted over the dorsal foot too, which is not, uh, which doesn't perfectly matched to his wounds, but probably like, likely related. The doctors there in the hospital actually check an ankle brachial index, which reportedly demonstrated a significant difference suggesting peripheral vascular disease. They ask really carefully about a history of claudication, and he actually now endorses claudication for a number of years. It didn't come up on history initially because it didn't really bother him. He actually had a fairly sedentary lifestyle. And so it limited if he was ever going to walk too far, but that that didn't come up often enough to uh, bother him. So he's transferred to vascular surgery at a tertiary care hospital for ongoing management, and now he gets his uh, CT and conventional angiograms of the lower extremities. And here's what they show. So the CT angiogram shows diffuse atheromatous disease in the distal aorta. The right leg has moderate proximal popliteal stenosis. Left leg has stenotic distal superficial femoral artery, or SFA, popliteal and tibioperoneal trunk. The angiogram of the left leg shows severe stenosis of the SFA, moderate length occlusion of the TPA trunk. Peroneal is the only runoff, and it reconstitutes the posterior tibial artery via large posterior communicating collaterals distally. The angiogram of the right leg The SFA is mildly irregular. There's proximal popliteal um, stenosis. There's infragenoculate popliteal uh, stenosis as well. The TP trunk contains eccentric calcification and plaques. There is single vessel calf runoff via peroneal artery. So fairly diffuse vascular disease, 
the impression that the vascular surgery team has is that this is really severe atherosclerotic peripheral vascular disease in the context of a guy with lots of risk factors and known coronary artery disease. So the problem is it still doesn't explain his toe. I mean, I think that in order to, I mean, it's suggestive he has an osteomyelitis. Um, so he has, we thought he had poor circulation. Thomas initially, uh, in his uh, synthesis of the case, actually suggested all of the, all of the findings that were found. The, the issue is that that's not going to give him the necrosis and the osteomyelitis. So again, it, it, it continues to raise the possibility of what's the, what's the antigen? What's the, what's the bacteria? What's the, source of infection in his toe, because I still think that that's where the problem is. I also think about, um, like, the corollary for me that I often see is coronary disease, and I always wonder, things that mimic coronary disease. So how certain are we that this is actually atherosclerotic disease, as opposed to some other vascular disease that could look very similar? And I guess in your experience, since you're a vasculitis expert, how good is CT and conventional angio at differentiating those things? Because to me, it just looks like usually there's just stenoses everywhere, and it's actually often MRI or biopsy that's really needed to make that diagnosis. I'd say that when we're talking about like large vessel vasculitis, GCA, Takeyasu, uh, Kogan's, CT, MRI have very essentially very similar sensitivity specificity. Neither is perfect. Uh, MRI offers you a little bit more data about the vessel wall. But even if it lights up, suggesting that there's active inflammation, same deal with a PET scan, just because it lights up doesn't mean it's clinically important inflammation. It doesn't necessarily necessitate a change in treatment. CT uh, can give us a little bit more information about the calcification that MRI can't. Both can tell us about the shape of the lumen. And uh, usually it is pattern um, and distribution that I think helps the radiologist make a call of like, oh, this guy has vasculitis all over his body, or this guy in his 60 with coronary artery disease and calcific plaques all the way down both legs um, with a story of gradually progressive claudication. This really, this is, this is atherosclerotic disease. Um, so for this guy, really large medium vessel vasculitis was left off the differential from the perspective of vascular surgery. But I, I, I think Thomas's point is really, really well taken. I mean, I guess the question we'd have to ask ourselves is if he does have uh, giant cell arteritis involving his, his aorta and his uh, larger vessels, is there an association with IgA leukocytoclastic vasculitis? I'm sure that we'll learn that, but I don't know that. I would also say that it's quite probable if he does have underlying non-atherosclerotic vasculitis that he also has traditional atherosclerotic disease as well. Yeah. So, you know, some of it may be traditional and some of it may be worsened by the fact that he already has some traditional atherosclerotic disease. So it's possible to have two separate diagnoses. So right. I would just make super, super careful and sure that in a guy with a rare diagnosis like IgA vasculitis that we don't chalk everything up to being routine stuff because the treatment for those two things, atherosclerotic blockages versus vasculitis blockages, is completely different. Fair enough. So under the, the vascular surgery team, he undergoes balloon angioplasty to both legs. He has good angiographic results, and I'll actually provide uh, photos of that um, to see online. He is started on Plavix, which is added to his aspirin 
He's discharged on prednisone 40 milligrams daily. There's no taper plan at that point. Uh, his purpuric rash that was there a few days after he nicked his toe, it's essentially gone. He has like a couple resolving lesions now, but essentially he went from pretty much covered to pretty much nothing. And it seems like it was actually starting to improve, or it was definitely improving before he was started on any high-dose IV or oral prednisone. It was just the topical agent that he was using. So shortly after his angiogram, this is within a couple of weeks or so, by, uh, by my recollection, his right second toe turns black. His other skin lesions remain and start to gradually improve with wound care, but he's readmitted to hospital for query cellulitis of his feet and this new black toe. He has some, uh, uh, some additional investigations. He has a normal CBC. His creatinine is now 143 but there's no repeat urinalysis. He's seen by infectious diseases who felt this was not infectious, and the black toe was not infectious. They didn't feel that there was any cellulitis, and they discontinued antibiotics that were started in the eMERGE. He was diagnosed with dry gangrene related to either IgA vasculitis or severe peripheral vascular disease. He's seen by rheumatology who at this time decide to initiate azathioprine, imuran, for potential benefit for systemic inflammatory vasculitis. Importantly, just to add to um, his presentation, there was no uh, blue or purple discoloration of any of his other uh, digits or limbs. He had no livido reticularis, no fevers, and his labs don't identify any eosinophilia or elevated inflammatory markers. Why did I bring any of those up in this gentleman's context? Well, I, I guess, in, first of all, uh, Maybe before I answer the question, and I'm not sure I can answer the question, but um, I'm surprised that rheumatology would come and decide on Imuran based on the fact that he's done poorly with prednisone, or the, I guess it's prednisone that he's on as an outpatient. And I'm not sure what we're treating here. Um, are we treating his kidney and think that there's the, a lesion in his kidney? The skin is not the problem at this point. And we're still faced with the toe that's, or the foot that's got progressive lesions. So I'm a little confused about the decision to, to use azathioprine, um, at this point. To your other questions, I've forgotten the questions, but I'd be happy to respond. I'm really just leading us into the question of, in addition to this black toe, etiology unknown, the IgA skin vasculitis for sure, maybe renal. He had invasive procedures. He had angiograms done of both legs and within short course presents with a, a new gangrenous toe, I think we have to consider the diagnosis of cholesterol emboli syndrome. Right. And that's why you mentioned the eosinophils. Yeah. But I think that's taken in the context of somebody who is doing well and gets an angiogram, not someone with all these competing factors. So it's possible he's cholesterol embolism. It is seen rarely, but to have a third new diagnosis, so so far he's got a diagnosis of IgA vasculitis, he's got a diagnosis of severe atherosclerotic peripheral vascular disease, and now we're going to give him a diagnosis of, of catheter-induced, um, you know, you know, cholesterol embolism, that's, that's pretty ridiculous. And, and I, I would support, and I, I mean, if he had multiple, uh, lesions on his to other toes that were removed and they had, uh, that looked, cyanotic or that that appeared or even became tender i would support that but to have the progression of of the lesion in the same area anatomically maybe you'll show us that this is 
cholesterol circulating in in his toe. I don't know, but uh, I would agree. It's it's. I think it's unlikely. So what do you guys want to do? Well, I would stop the Imuran. Okay. And I think stopped. that yeah, Imuran stopped. And I think that I think it's time that we actually got some tissue. I think that we being since I don't do the the, the tissue, uh, uh, I don't obtain the tissue. But I think vascular surgery needs to get more aggressive. I think we have to look at the toe and the foot and take a piece of that and, I guess in this situation, amputate that area or debride the area and actually look at it and look at it and see if he does have osteomyelitis. Thomas, what do you think? You can disagree. And Throughout all of this, have we checked, rechecked CRPs or inflammatory markers of any kind? Have we redone a rheumatologic panel? Have we asked dermatology to see him again? I sometimes think revisiting the things that we probably at this point did months ago may help us understand better as opposed to doing something brand new. So I think it's around, uh, so uh, sorry, just just to mention, because uh, you mentioned you were uh, responding to me, but hyperacinophilia is seen in about 80% of cholesterol emboli syndrome, but it occurs early in the disease and then will go away. But what I didn't know and what I think was important for my knowledge was that cholesterol emboli syndrome doesn't have to happen immediately after the procedure, it can, that can be the event, that can be the initial shower of the cholesterol crystals uh, from disrupted plaque, but then you can get the occlusion, the immune-mediated uh, phenomenon days, weeks, and maybe even months after. So that is an important, it's a risk factor that we have to hold on to as, as we would move through that possibility. I agree with you that to layer on rare diagnoses um, feels like it, it just makes things more not less complicated and leads us farther from rather than closer to an answer and how would we treat him differently even if it was that so to the question of um getting that formal uh biopsy that is that is a no-go they say no they is vascular surgery yeah says no. No, no one's gonna take his toe because they feel uh, the gangrene actually we don't know how much of it's gonna resolve um and and so the feeling typical wound care management of gangrene is to wait and see. They've already done the balloon dilatation and they don't want to risk further intervention because of the severity of his vascular disease. They felt this was really this was really the best management at the moment. He doesn't require any more vascular intervention. And I guess so we're not going to get that in this case. Yeah, what I would say to that is that and it's really a biased view because it's seeing the complications on a vascular ward. But my experience has been is that when you're admitted to a hospital like this and treat, treated as in this fashion, you're in for the duration. You're in for weeks as you're one, watching these lesions. And, and in the end, the, the absolute um, decision at the beginning fluctuates as, as the weeks progress. And certainly as the potential lesions progress, even if he has cholesterol emboli from his catheter, even if that, that doesn't answer our first question is why was this toe black at the beginning and why did he, and is there any relationship to the leukocytoclastic vasculitis? Sure. So without biopsy, what else can you do to even answer this case? Because I would say, I'll tell you kind of what we decided in, in the clinic together, but what more do you want before you make decisions about treatment. You've already decided to stop the Imuran, but remember this guy was discharged on from hospital on 40 milligrams of prednisone with no taper. 
for query vasculitis of some sort of SSV, some sort of vasculitis. Yeah. What do you, what, at this point, I'm going to ask you to actually put your money on a diagnosis or a, a couple diagnoses and treat those things. What are you going to do? So I think, you know, the choice is since tissue is not, does not seem to be where we can go, you either decide you're going to do more imaging, more blood work, or do nothing at all and treat something that you're not sure what it is. Because it seems that everything we've gotten so far has not answered the question. So we either just commit to a treatment based on our best guess or we try and figure out more. So um, perhaps I would try to phone a friend in this case and look to see if someone had more advice. But like, you know, I guess the major question is, do you think we're going to get anything out of doing more imaging, even imaging, looking for perineoplastic syndromes, looking in the chest, abdomen, pelvis, things we haven't looked for yet, doing potentially MRIs of the of the legs and vasculature. And then um, I still think, you know, we've had a couple negative blood cultures over the last little while, but I'm not sure that we've really done everything that we can do in terms of looking for um, other infectious causes. And, you know, I think about a lot of the, you know, exposures in the garden, things like that that cause black limbs. You know, there's just things that are are rare and weird. And I'd probably just do some reading if there's any other serologies that I could order, things like that, because they don't immediately come to mind what I should order. It's not within my realm of knowledge. But I, I think I would like to think that if I was in this scenario, I would just go to the textbook and I would start to read what infections can look like this, what rheumatologic conditions can look like this, and then just see if there's any specific blood tests I can order for those. I guess the other thing I would, I would do is it, we just we talked about it at the outset. I mean, first of all, the, the, the prednisone needs to come off. So that that's, I think, rather than add, I'd stop the Imuran and I'd certainly stop or taper the prednisone. Given the fact that the context of a of a what appears to be a vasculitis and a, a vascular involvement, and then he's diabetic, it raises the 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 possibility of a fungal infection that's been missed, and we've just not pursued it. And the final thing I think I do after calling the surgeon yet one more time um, is to do an echocardiogram because we started out at the beginning saying, is it possible that he has this something? in a distant area and that he's having problems and this is just an, a manifestation of endocarditis. Okay, so uh, he does have a recent echo on the books that went during one of his hospital admissions. I must have forgotten to mention that. Echo's normal. At this point, we see him in the vasculitis clinic and we review the case um, with both staff and, and the other fellow there. And we do some thinking about other infectious causes. And honestly, where we landed was we actually don't, we, we don't require an infection for IgA vasculitis. That happens for any old reason. There's all sorts of associations with preceding infection, but there's nothing that we know is causative. So we don't require it for that. We reviewed all of his investigations. We repeated some of his auto, uh, his rheumatologic workup to make sure that it was uh, normal on repeat. What we see is his, uh, on his repeat blood work, his renal function actually starts to improve. His urinalysis just shows a little bit of protein, but no blood. And um, we stop his prednisone after a very short taper. And we decide that we want to see what happens. Not that we're so comfortable saying like, yeah, well, we'll see like what happens to your, <laughs> the rest of your toes. But there, we felt that we were kind of at the end of the diagnostic road. One staff felt 
that IgA vasculitis could potentially be a cause for a gangrenous toes, although it would be an exceedingly unusual presentation. Uh, and the other staff felt that that was not possible. So kind of 50-50 on whether we could even associate it. In my review, I cannot find any good case reports of gangrenous toes in IgA vasculitis that's attributed to the IgA. But looking through the large cohorts, it looks like they don't describe any necrotic digits. So I think as far as I can tell, I'm going to have to say that the IgA vasculitis, which this person did have, really didn't, is not a good answer for the black toe. He's had extensive immune and thrombophilic workup, which is all negative, and we felt that that was adequate. He had blood cultures, but if there's another infection in particular that comes up for you guys, I'd, I'd certainly like to hear it and I can suggest it, but we didn't feel that anything else really actually applied here. Couldn't think of one that was a good answer, especially with a negative echo. So we opted for change his treatment, watch and see what happens, and that will be helpful in diagnosis, but also just helping this guy move forward. So tapered prednisone, we stopped his Imuran just as you did. Uh, he continues to go to wound care religiously. He has improvement in his renal function. Uh, his wounds uh, gradually improve, uh, and he's not had any recurrent rash. He's feeling systemically well, kind of as he was before. He was put on a course of antibiotics um, later on for query osteomyelitis, completed that um, under the supervision of infectious diseases. And last I spoke to him was a couple weeks ago, and he says that he's doing really well. The gangrene is improving, but not entirely resolved. Um, and the ulcers on his feet are also improving. So that brings us to now. Not that, uh, you know, I, I certainly don't want to present exclusively cases where we don't know the answer, but I think that the point of this podcast is to just go through the clinical reasoning, and the end result, to me, is actually less important. This actually represents cases that we are always going to see. Gray area, you can't get the tissue even if you want it. Sorry, neurosurge isn't going to do the brain biopsy for you, even though that might be helpful, and you have to just make decisions. So in discussion with vascular surgery and uh, the vasculitis team, we felt that this was very severe peripheral vascular disease, which meant that his wound healing was so impaired that even the small nick to his toe was actually totally sufficient to result in um, some small progressive gangrene, localized gangrene. Uh, we thought that the IgA vasculitis was um, an unrelated phenomenon. It's very bizarre, but we can't link them. So we think this was two things, not one. And it's interesting, I'm smiling, but the listeners can't see me smiling, but the reason I'm smiling is because the same people I would assume, or the same group that said he didn't have an infection, then treated him for six weeks or eight weeks of, for an infection. So I think it's, it's, that's what clinical reasoning is. It's uh, probabilities, uh, looking at possibilities, excluding some things, trying to do no harm, and trying to do uh, at the least possible, I guess, intervention that would give some benefit. So I think it's, I think I would have done the same thing. I think I would have treated him on spec for the possibility of osteomyelitis. And it doesn't, it'd be interesting. We, I guess it's not finished, but it'd be very interesting to see what happens to the skin lesions if they ever recur. That, yeah. that would then suggest that there's two separate entities. If they never recur, I don't think we'll ever know. 
So recurrence rate of IgA vasculitis is about 20% in adults. So I will keep you guys posted for sure about what happens to this gentleman. He and I are in touch, so I can definitely update everyone. So that brings us to the end of uh, this episode. Thank you so much for listening. We'd be happy to hear any feedback or ideas uh, from our listeners, and we will see you next time.